72 kilos and my parachute will give your arguments the most decisive of denials. Some of you are looking at each other like, what? What did he just say? Those are maybe aren't the most memorable last words, but they were bold. Franz Reichelt was a French tailor and inventor who became fixated on creating a, a wearable parachute for, to save the lives of pilots very early in the days of aviation. He conducted all sorts of experiments with test dummies around his wearable parachutes, and he finally settled on the design for his parachute suit. Not to be confused with a zoot suit, that would come decades later, but you can see the, the resemblance there. But tests with his parachute suit with test dummies were not successful, but he was so determined that his invention was right on, he thought it must be the height, because he was trying to drop it from apartment buildings and things like that, and the test dummy with this parachute suit just went straight to the ground. He thought the height must be the problem. I'm not getting high enough. Yeah, some of you know where this is going. So on the morning of February 4th, 1912, Franz arrived at the Eiffel Tower. After announcing he would conduct yet another experiment. He got permission to conduct his experiment here at the Eiffel Tower because everyone assumed he was going to use another test dummy. Franz was so determined to prove his invention once and for all in front of the watching world, there were reporters and a crowd gathered there, that he showed up that morning wearing the parachute suit himself. His friends, who realized what he was doing, pleaded with him. It's not ready. It hasn't been working. There's no reason to do this yourself. But their arguments wouldn't sway him. And so he said those words. You are going to see how my 72 kilos and my parachute will give your arguments the most decisive of denials. So he climbed to the tower's first deck, 187 feet above the frozen ground. He stood on a stool that you can make out in this picture. There was a restaurant table pulled right to the edge of the guardrail and a stool put on top. He got up on that stool and one foot on the guardrail. He tested the wind by tearing a piece of paper out of a book and tossing it off, kind of to get the feel for where the wind was going. Once he was ready, Franz Reichelt leaped from the rail and he fell straight down to his death. This guy was a successful tailor, he was a successful businessman, a promising inventor, he had great intentions. He was trying to save lives with his inventions, with his parachute design. But his legacy now is forever linked with this final tragic mistake. His last words are bold, but now we only see them ironically, right, as a contrast with the sad reality of his death. If you Google this guy, and don't do it now, please, you'll quickly see that despite all his other accomplishments, anything else he may be known for, he's primarily now remembered for the guy who jumped off the Eiffel Tower to his death. That's what he's sadly mostly remembered for. We conclude our series on the life of David this morning. Over the last several weeks, we've seen this unlikely rise of David. This young shepherd 
to become the king of all Israel. And we've also seen his tragic downfall. Different kind of fall than Franz Reichelt, but a fall nonetheless. And so we come to the end of his story and we could ask, will David be remembered for more than just his fall? For more than just his sin? And we come to this unique passage in 2 Samuel 23 that the author of this book calls David's Last Words. And his last words, like Franz Reichelt, are bold. They get your attention. David's last words are this portrait of a righteous king. And now, if David was only describing himself here, we might take issue. These, these words might ring a little hollow in light of David's weakness and his failure. But this passage points us not just to David, but to a coming king who will perfectly fulfill these words. And so David's legacy is not just about him. God used David, though, to point to Jesus. And so we conclude his story this morning, reminded that we were never meant to put our full hope and our full trust in human leaders or kings anyway. But to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on our true king, our coming king, and to grow in our longing for him. Would you pray with me as we turn to this passage? Father, we give you thanks for this, another Sunday morning to worship together, to come together as your people. And so, Father, we just give you thanks. Open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word that we might be more conformed to the image of your Son. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. So, uh, if you can turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 23, if you have a Bible in front of you. Uh, Again, we come to a section of text that's a lot more text than we could ever hope to cover or do justice to in one sermon. So as we've been encouraging you, take some time throughout the week, read the final chapters of 2 Samuel to get the full picture. But last week we looked at some of the heavy consequences that David experienced due to his sin that played out in his family and in the nation. Now he, he was forgiven, we saw that clearly. Uh, but he su- suffered some severe consequences. He was on the run from his son, Absalom. But finally, the kingdom was eventually restored to David. And we see that play out in chapter 19. But we come to this final uh, section of the book, these final chapters of Second Samuel. And it's sort of like an epilogue, where the author of the book has arranged some final things he wants to tell us about David's story out of chronological order on purpose. But it's put together with an interesting structure. Uh, Chapters 21 through 24 are these final chapters. And and we see several parallels going on here as we look at the outside of these chapters moving to the inside. Uh, Some of the highlights are more of David's failures, which again the author has not been hiding for us along the way. We have some stories of David's mighty men. And then in the very center of these chapters we have two poems. On the one side is... Chapter 22, which is a psalm of thanksgiving, which flashes us back, way back, earlier in David's life, where he is writing this psalm to give thanks for how God delivered him from Saul. But then the very next chapter, which is where we're going to look today, uh, chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, we flash way forward now to the end of David's life with this poem that's labeled as the last words of David. So let's look there again, 2 Samuel 23, starting in verses 1 and 2. These are the last words of David, the declaration of David, son of Jesse, the declaration of the man raised on high, the one anointed by the God of Jacob. 
This is the most delightful of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Now we should mention these aren't the actual last words of David that we see in this very book. But the author is labeling them here, setting them aside here for special importance. It's called a declaration, an utterance, an oracle, depending on what translation you have in front of you. This means it's a message of special importance. Usually when this word is used, it's to describe a message straight from God. And that's exactly what we have here. But right at the beginning, we get quite the introduction to David. He's first called the son of Jesse, which on its own doesn't mean a whole lot, right? Jesse wasn't a notable character in Israel's history. Remember when we first saw David, he was a nobody shepherd out shepherding the sheep while Jesse, his father, lined up all of David's older brothers before Samuel to which one of these guys is going to be the next king. David wasn't even invited. But that's the one that God chose. God chose David, this overlooked and insignificant young man, to be the king. He's the one who God raised on high in the words of this poem. He's the one who was anointed king. And you can see throughout this whole poem this repetition, line by line, which is a feature of Hebrew poetry. The CSB that I'm reading from says, this is the most delightful of Israel's songs. And you probably have something different if you have a different translation in front of you there. The ESV says, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So these phrases here, some think point to the song itself and others to the man, to David. He certainly was the sweet psalmist of Israel, and that seems to fit the context here, pointing to David. And I like how the NIV puts it, the hero of Israel's songs. And that was true, too. You remember how Saul wasn't too happy when he found out people were singing way cooler songs about David than they were about him? David was the hero of Israel's songs. And verse 2 clarifies the origin of this oracle. Remember, this is right from the Spirit of God. Now, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given to us by God, including the many other psalms and the many other writings of David. But David seems to be especially aware of that here. And so he and the author draw our attention to this. In other words, what I'm about to say is really important. Pay attention. And this, by the way, is a nice confirmation that God wasn't done with David after his sin. God didn't cast him off. God forgave him and God gave him a special message for God's people. So let's be reminded here that we too are not cast aside by God when we sin. I imagine this was a great comfort for David coming to the end of his life and being able to say with confidence that God was speaking to him and that God was even speaking through him. So let's look at David's declaration. Let's just read this whole poem. It's just verses 3 through 7 so we can get the whole picture. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning. The glisten of rain on sprouting grass. Is it not true my house is with God? For he has established a permanent covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? But all the wicked are like thorns raked aside. They can never be picked up by hand. The man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. They will be completely burned up on the spot. And so these last words of David are just this short, unique poem. 
about a righteous king. In verses 3 and 4, this righteous king is compared to this picture of morning sunlight and rain or dew on the morning grass. Makes you think of blessing, right, and abundance and new life. When the king is ruling this way, in the fear of God, under the authority of God, with justice, then it's, of course, a great blessing for the people that he's ruling. It's refreshing. It stands in contrast to the wicked that we see in verses 6 and 7, who are pictured just as thorns. Have to be, the king has to get them out of the way so the rest of the plants can flourish. Now this, we could say, would be true of any righteous king, right? The, a king, a ruler who rules this way in the fear of God, who rules with justice, it's a blessing to the people. But verse 5, David turns the attention to himself directly. Is it not true my house is with God? For he has established a permanent covenant with me. Other kings couldn't say that. Saul certainly couldn't have said that. God established a special, unique covenant promise with David. And so in the very center of this poem that comes right from the word of God is this clear statement of God's promise. And we saw this back in chapter 7, if you've been tracking with our series, when God promised David, he said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And now this is a covenant promise made by God, ultimately not up to David, but up to God to deliver on his promise. I love how David knows this very well. He says, this promise is ordered and secured in every detail. We may not always see or understand how God is going to deliver, how God is going to keep his promises, but as David says here, we know that all of God's promises to us in Christ are ordered and secured in every detail. If God said it, he's going to make it happen. And so David concludes, will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? So as much as David sought in his reign to rule justly, to rule with righteousness, he could expect God to show up. He could expect God to deliver him from his enemies. And that's primarily the idea of salvation here. It's this physical deliverance. But of course it points us to more than just that. And even his every desire granted, that's his deepest longings. David said it in Psalm 37, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. And what did this king desire above all else? We heard it already from Psalm 27. I hadn't planned that with Earl, but we've already heard this text. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple, that was David's greatest desire. David desired the presence of God more than anything. His delight was in the Lord, and so the Lord gave him more of what he desired, which is more of himself. See, when we draw near to God, it doesn't mean we get an easy life. It doesn't mean we get prosperity or everything that we could ever want. But we get more and more of the presence of God. This relationship that we were created for. This is a God who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And what better thing can he give us than more of himself? And so as we come to the end of this series on David, the man after God's own heart, let's, as we began this series, let's ask ourselves again, are we men and women, are we people seeking after God's heart? Is our longing truly for God, his presence, and his will? 
Or has something else crept in and been consuming your heart lately? What's been taking that top spot? In David's life and in his Psalms, he shows us what a man after God's own heart looks like. And we can pray through his words. We can pray his Psalms and his prayers as we seek to grow this way. And so as we remember David, we know he was a man after God's own heart. But again, the author's clear that his legacy is not spotless. He's got massive failures that are probably fresh in our mind from our series and even some in the surrounding passage here. So how do these last words strike us as we hear them? To portray himself as this righteous king, is he trying to just sugarcoat his legacy? Using these last words to kind of smooth things over, you know, hey scribe, get a pen. Here's how I want the people to remember me. Kind of like at funerals, we really usually only hear the great things about that person and not the rest of the story. Is that what's happening here? However you view David, there there is at least a little tension. I think we can all agree. There's a little tension here as we read this passage. As one commentator put it, this verse portrays David as he should always have been, not as he always was. So is this dishonest? Is this misleading or inconsistent with reality like Franz Reichelt, his last words, do they really match up with reality, with what happened? But again, if the focus of this poem was only on David, then I think, yes, we might take issue. But the Spirit of God gave David these words. And we see even in this poem, it's not all about David. Because David's last words don't point us back to all the great things that David did. They actually point us forward. David draws our attention. The Holy Spirit draws our attention to this eternal covenant. This throne that will never end. Even though David ultimately failed. Even though Solomon ultimately failed. And every king that came after. But these words point us forward. To the king who fulfills this perfectly. The Lord Jesus. Descendant of David. David's last words here have long been understood as pointing to the coming Messiah. Jesus' own words and his parables take similar imagery, maybe drawing from this very text to say that he's the Messiah. What does Gabriel tell Mary? The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. That should sound very familiar to us. The Davidic covenant finally being fulfilled by the only king who rules with perfect justice. His rule, the rule of Jesus alone, ultimately fulfills these words that it's like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. We as believers are citizens of this kingdom now. And when Jesus returns to take the throne and bring that kingdom in fullness, he will make all things right. He will make all things new. And so the cry of our hearts, the cry of God's people has been even so, come Lord Jesus. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Started in my heart. David leaves us with a mixed legacy, which is the best that any human being can do. As great a king as David was, he couldn't be the king the world ultimately needed. He couldn't do anything about the world's sin, let alone his own. 
But in his successes, in his victories, David points us forward to the Messiah. He points us forward to this perfect kingdom and this perfect king. He gives us a taste, a glimpse of what that rule will be. And even in his failures, David points us to Jesus because we're reminded that a human being can never take the weight of our hopes, the weight of our trust. Only Jesus can do that. The election cycle is upon us again. Isn't that exciting? Let's fill our hearts with great joy. And looking at this text this week, just thinking it would be so nice if Jesus would come back before next November, right? But if he doesn't, this text reminds me to, even early in this election cycle, to take note of my heart. For us to take note of our hearts and to remember how easy it is for having human nature, for us to fall into putting our trust and putting our hope into earthly things and human leaders. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to vote. We need to get involved in the issues that matter to us. But we also need to keep an eye on our hearts and watch out that issues, that agendas, that leaders don't become idols. If only this man or this woman was in office, then we'd be set. No. See, this idolatry of the heart keeps us from being men and women like David, pursuing God's heart above all else. Jesus alone is worthy of our hope, of our trust, of our faith, because he alone can and will deliver on every promise that he's made. Franz Reichelt, as I think back on his legacy, he had a lot going for him. He really did. He was a successful businessman. He was a dressmaker and tailor, promising inventor, seemed to have a lot of great ideas. But again, he is most remembered for this tragic final mistake, his leap from the Eiffel Tower. Last words that he uttered are in stark, tragic contrast to the reality. When people talk about you, when people talk about me after we're gone, what will they say? What will we be most remembered for? What's the legacy that we're going to leave behind? David was far from perfect, but really as legacies go, you could do worse than pointing people to the Messiah, right? And so whatever things, whatever our areas of interest, whatever our vocations, whatever our passions Whatever our unique gifts, let's get after those for the glory of God, but may God help us to be people primarily known for pursuing God's heart, for pointing people to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who in Revelation 22 said, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Father, grow our longing for our King and his kingdom. Father, help us to pursue your heart, to see how David did that, to grow our heart in that same direction. Help us to pursue your heart in everything we do and say. We ask this for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us stand to our feet.